Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And this is episode 152 of the Event Horizon, if you can believe that. <laughs> you mean we, we might actually know what we're doing by now? <laughs> and our guest is Dave Schrader, who is the author of the Xenotech series, a science fiction and comedy in perfect blend. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we can't call it a trilogy, even though it goes up to book three, because it starts with zero. <laughs> well, I, I am an, I, a computer person, after all. And uh-huh. uh, and the last book start, ends on a cliffhanger like, whoa, and I'm not even going there. And I am 83,000 words into 100,000 or thereabouts of book four right now, so it should be out by the end of the year. You better be. <laughs> That's all I can say. Who's your publisher? Uh, it's Spiral Arm Press, which happens to be a private imprint of my own. Uh-huh. I went the self-publishing route because I'm an impatient individual, and I couldn't stand waiting a year between submission and publication. And uh, I can understand. There's that. a certain there's a certain advantage in greenlighting your own projects. <laughs> As as well we know, and we, we greenlight our own stuff all the time. Yeah, well, sometimes I wish we had someone who could tell us that was a dumb idea. Don't do that. Do it like this. <laughs> that's And that's the drawback to self-publishing or greenlighting your own stuff, because you only have your own perspective to go on. You do have your own, you know, editor, copy editors, beta readers, and other people that... Yes, I do. I, and, head. and I'm very lucky in that my charming lady wife is a, um, a, a very good editor and also has been following the series, of course, from the beginning and can say, that's dumb. As a matter of fact, on the first book, I'd actually written two or three additional chapters and she said, Dave, the story ends here. Stop it here. And I took her advice and I think it was the better for it. Mm-hmm. Well, you have editing experience. <laughs> yes, indeed I do. Uh, and the I've national- actually, part of the reason I felt comfortable running my own imprint was that I've had publishing experience um, through hobby organizations and um, I'd kind of grown up with the desktop publishing revolution. So my mission was to try and make the books indistinguishable from books created by conventional publishers. And indeed, at local conventions out here in the southeast, I've been teaching classes 
for self-published authors on how to design book interiors so that they look truly professional. Mm. Oh, that's come, interesting. We need to come to those conventions. Right. I can send you my uh, my uh, PowerPoint if you'd like for your own ent- entertainment. <laughs> uh, that might actually be useful. I mean, we we are uh, we're eventually going to end up doing some of our own publication, and uh, we can use all the help we can get. That's that's on our to do list. Yeah, it's on our to do list. Long range stuff. Certainly, so, and I mean, part of the fun of this was you know I love the little. Um, the little marks that they would have to indicate each press that would appear on the spines of the of current books and the old classic science fiction paperbacks. So I've used the imprint Spiral Arm Press, and on each of my uh, trade paperback books, you have the two arms of the of a, of a galaxy of a spiral galaxy as as the imprint, and it. it it always makes me smile when I see it, so I hope it makes other people smile when they do as well. The the book just starts right off. I mean, the first the first book of the series, book zero, uh, the first contact day, just starts right off with one of the most remarkable events in human history. Uh, uh, the, yeah, which I hope <laughs> comes off as a. A bit more matter of fact than one would expect otherwise. Well, take me to your leader was never so true. Who runs this joint? (laughs) Well, I I knew the answer to that question, and that's why I put the aliens in the office of the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase. (laughs) (laughs) Run us through some pronunciations on the alien alien names, would you? Oh, I'd be glad to. Uh, Let's see. Tigramath. Mm-hmm. Is the tall feline aliens, which you Miriam. can easily imagine the inspiration mm-hmm. for that. Uh-huh. Um, they're sort of pacifistic Kazin, um, the but without Kazin if they were ectomorphs. Mm-hmm. Um, the peers are uh, like peers of the realm. And they're the pyramidal-shaped aliens that come in four-sided and three-sided, depending on gender. And the Nikosans are the ones who look like Santa Claus but have beards made of tentacles instead of hair. I have several other aliens, including large pink elephant-shaped aliens called Daushans. Mm-hmm. Um, I have merms, which are small insect species, and pack, which are loosely borrowed from uh, several different authors. Uh, the name has some inspiration from Niven, of course, but these pack are a combination of wolf and bear, and they come in a short and a long variety. The short and long simply refer to the horizon of their thinking, the uh, short, the long-term pack think of humans as sheep for wool. The short-term pack think of us as lamb chops. Mm, yummy! Oh boy, <laughs> that's yeah. That's going to represent some serious problems later on. Uh, it it harkens back to the Twilight Zone episode, of course, to serve man. Right, but <laughs> but in this case, it's it's more a matter of. Uh, not so much uh, 
physical ex- exploitation is economic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the fun I've been having with this is what if aliens were equally venal to humans and possibly uh, equally naive as we are on occasion as well. So I did not want to have um, super smart aliens that were solving all of Earth's problems. These folks are small, solving many of Earth's problems primarily because they've just been at it longer, not because they're innately better. Right. I've for the the listeners who haven't heard of these works yet, uh, I've got this this favorite little bit from the part that I have read. Uh, we've got this character named Jack Buxton, president and CEO, and for the present sole employee of Xenotech Support Corporation. And um, he has a, an encounter with a client who has a little problem with a uh, with a replicator. And uh, if I may, I'd like to read a paragraph, just one paragraph, uh, that describes the problem a little bit. The entire the entire lobby was filled with waist. I'm sorry. The entire lobby was filled waist high with robots, bright fuchsia-furred rabbit-sized robots with lots of broad, sharp teeth. They were semi-autonomous lawnmowers designed to trim grass in yards, parks, and golf courses. W T and F's main entrance was blocked by thousands of them hopping up on top of each other and milling about in waves of pink as high as the reception desk. The robots aren't supposed to activate right after they're printed. They're supposed to stay dormant to facilitate shipping. Something was definitely wrong. What a mental image that just painted. (laughs) And the entire book is like this. The, The tone of it is just so... So much fun and so offbeat and so delicious that it just, uh, it makes you want to turn the page and there is a belly laugh on every page. Every single one. It's, uh. The, the, um, the pun a minute, uh, dialogue could get a little cloying and, and unrealistic except that I live with that. <laughs> as, as do I. And I mean, I wrote what I, I wrote from reality in my own world where pun battles are, are a, a matter of uh, every day. And I, I, can't, I won't say the more the merrier, but there is a qualitative score that we are keeping in the family. I mean, just just as an example, right out of that paragraph, the company that he's visiting is WTF. WTF. <laughs> mm. Whiskey Tango Fox. Yeah, you got to watch. You got to watch. Um, Initials in this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's widget technology and fabrication, of course. Uh-huh. Of, of course, co- it of is. course it is. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just. Uh, uh, I was back in the 1970s, late 1970s. There was this radio show called Hour 25, upon which the Event Horizon is closely patterned, and uh, they had this. Uh, they would read books on the air, and one of the ones that they would read, and there would be a new chapter every week uh, for, I think, about three months, was The Butterfly Kid by Chester Anderson. I see. That really made an impression on it you, didn't really it? It really did. 
And uh, well, they got it was easier to get permission in those days. Yeah, a lot or at easier. least forgiveness. Oh uh, yeah, at least forgiveness. And uh, uh, I can't help drawing parallels between uh, Chester Anderson's writing style and yours. Uh, it's uh, it's quite the same sort of uh, quirky, colorful, you know, in your face, twisted, <laughs> upside down reality uh that he had in his books. Well, I now you've got me interested. I'll have to go look him up. Good luck with that. I'm sure it's pretty out of print. Well, maybe. It could happen. But uh I had a copy, but I remember dropping it in the bathtub. Oh, oops. Yeah. So have you gotten to the chapter where he is uh where Jack is visiting the Georgia State Senate yet? <laughs> Uh, yes, I did actually get to that part. <laughs> someday, the, someday would you, would the Georgia Senate. I shared that with your listeners. I, I do it in dialect, and it's it's. Oh, I would. Oh, why don't you do that? Oh, please do. The the background for this is that aliens have brought Earth cures for cancer, unlimited free energy and natural resources, the solution to climate change, all kinds of wonderful things. But what is it that they want from us? What they want from us is the rights to broadcast our legislative sessions to the galaxy because they consider them reality comedies and can't get enough of them. So uh, Jack is visiting a studio that's perched high above the Senate chamber here in, in Atlanta for the Georgia legislature, and he is listening pair of senators, Senator One, who is tall and thin, and Senator Zero, who is not, um, debate the merits of an important point on the floor. As all civic-minded residents of the fair state of Georgia must agree, the noble hadrosaur that roamed our fertile plains and herds of millions before the flood highly deserves to be designated as Georgia State Dinosaur, said Senator Zero. And I further resolve that such sums should be allocated to fund a statue of a caveman riding said noble hadrosaur for display on the Capitol grounds for the education and enjoyment of adults and children of all ages. I respectfully disagree, said Senator One. Said noble hadrosaur, like my esteemed colleague, had a brain the size of a walnut. It also had a giant crest on the top of its skull to trumpet its own self-importance. My candidate, the magnificent Albertosaurus, is an apex predator that eats hadrosaurs for breakfast while providing a much higher vantage point for any caveman riding on its back. A tall woman senator near the front stood up and requested to share the floor. Gentlemen, she said, even though it's not a native of this great state of Georgia, I nominate Pachycephalosaurus for state dinosaur because its name means thick-headed, and I can't think of any other animal, extinct or alive, that better represents the members of this body. (laughs) (laughs) Chaos ensued, and the real-time Galcumeter spiked. I had to pull out the earbuds to keep myself from laughing. Then the networks cut for commercials, and I could talk to the beings in the broadcast booth. Okay, time out. Time out, Mr. G. Are you going to try to ask him if we can do readings of this? I would love to do that. I I think we would. We could uh, have a wonderful series out of this book, out of just the first one. Uh, What do you think? 
Uh, I think we might have a conversation about it. I, I am planning on having it done as having the whole series done as audiobooks. Hey, if I heard one chapter of this, I'd have to go buy the rest of the audiobook. <laughs> well, that's what I'm hoping as well. So mm-hmm. I, part of it may be an issue of timing, too. True, true. But, but I am not at all adverse to the, to, to, to the discussion. I think it would be wonderful entertainment. And uh, it would certainly help you sell more of the books. Yeah, and, and I think what I'm really wondering about for myself is whether or not I should do my own narration. Because I've, I am a voice actor with the Atlanta Radio Theater Company, which mm-hmm. we can page back into on that topic at some point later. But So I, I know how to do it, but I don't know if my voice is properly Jack's voice. I don't think that matters so much. I think it's, uh, I think it's the, the spirit of it more than the accuracy of, of the voice casting. One reader is not going to sound like all the characters. He may, he may try a little bit. You know, but, but, but the listener doesn't expect, uh, the voice actor to be able to. To be all the boys and the girls. Well, no, and, and that <laughs> I appreciate. It's just that, Jack himself is is in, is in his mid to upper twenties, and since it's first person, the majority of it, I think, should be in a voice that sounds like it's someone of that age. But I'm, I'm talking about my audiobooks, not reading mm-hmm. it for you. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a few people in mind to recommend, but we'll do that offsite. Well, well we can do that offline. Yeah. That would be good. <laughs> uh, let me know when you want to return to the former. To the how long did these edit down to? By the way, for yourselves. What the uh, the radio shows? Yes. Oh, uh, we this this is the, we have an hour one, time slot. Yeah, so. we we oh, fill an hour. We can yeah, blather about the what I really wanted to blather about was the books and, and whatever other work you wanted to promote. And uh, I'm just I'm so enthralled with the uh, with the universe in which the books exist, in, in which the whole thing is set. And he doesn't say this to everybody we talk to by any means. <laughs> You are very kind, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, we've I, read some stinkers. <laughs> it, it has been fun for me. I actually have a fan club of people who are beating on me, like, when's the fourth book coming out? When's the uh-huh. fourth book coming out? And I had to go to um, create a store so that people could buy their own Xenotech support polo shirts. It's great. I need one. Okay. And they make them, they'd make them in your size, I'm sure. Um, it's QB store. Oh no, it's xenotech.qbstores.com, which is the Queensboro shirt company. Mm-hmm. I think it's xenotech.qbstores.com and you can get the logo on lots of different merchandise. Cool. <laughs> like a phone cover. <laughs> so when did the phone cover comes into the story later on, by the way. The phone cover. Now that's phone cover, boy howdy. If I could get one of those, I would I would definitely I would definitely do that. Oh, you were talking about um alien names. My insect alien species, the ones that morph into um, have five different stages of their lives, so they're very much into mutability. They are the orish or the and the adjective is orishan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And Jack, of course, goes to a school called Mulberry Tech, um, which is sort of um, an homage to silkworms. 
Okay, I was wondering where yeah, that was. Yeah, I figured that There was, was the something case. going on there, and I, I, I know there's jokes in there I'm not going to get. <laughs> well, and that's part of the fun of it. My, my wife says that I'm, I do a reasonably good job of making it clear what things are jokes, and if you don't particularly get them because you haven't read this particularly obscure piece of science fiction it won't bother you because it'll just go right past. Well, I do know that about every other street in in a, you know, Atlanta's uh, area is called Peachtree. I do know, I know that much. <laughs> yeah, and, and the GPSs don't seem to have too much trouble with it because they're just going by coordinates, but humans are still challenged here. Yeah, I do that. have one problem, though. Uh, Zesto's, which is a... Uh, referenced as a, a restaurant, uh, an ice cream place in the, um, in the first novel. That particular Zesto's location has been replaced by another restaurant. No! And one of my, um, reviewers on Amazon called me out on it and I said to myself, yeah, you can take that shot if you want, but in 15 years, who knows what happens in the restaurant industry? Well, that's Oh true. yeah, exactly. Uh, restaurants, uh, restaurants come come around again. Yeah, and on the West Coast they're I, I opening barrels uh, again. Behavior. When I was in working on a PhD program at Carnegie Mellon, and we used to joke there that fruit that uh, restaurants were the fruit flies of the organizational behavior discipline. You know, I never thought about that, but I can easily see why you would draw that comparison. Yeah, they pop in and out of existence. You know, some are successful, some aren't. You can test different management theories and see what works. I mean, part of the fun for me in writing this series was that I have been in the business world for well over 30 years, and I worked my way up the chain to being in senior management, executive management as a chief information officer about 15 years ago, and on that journey, I saw so much absurdity that it was just great to distill it, file some serial numbers off, and share it with readers. This is not exactly Dilbert, but it is <laughs> looking at the human foibles expressed in the business world and translating them into humorous fiction. Uh, the reaction of of JJ, the the uh, the guy who had ordered the replicator that was making the robots in the first place, who hadn't, who a hadn't bothered to read the manual, and b hadn't gone, hadn't sent anybody uh, for the mandatory training that would have prevented the disaster in the first place. I don't think it would have helped. <laughs> well, maybe. well, we only find that out later. So, oh, well, yeah. It's not quite in the moment. You certainly can uh, can blame him yeah. appropriately. <laughs> I think he's J. Jonah Jameson with a Quebecois accent. Actually, he is modeled on a CFO who was a particular challenge for me at one point in my career. I see. <laughs> you know what? If someone makes him angry, you just write him into a book. Yeah, well. Kill um, them in nasty ways. As you go farther and farther, he keeps reappearing. So uh, like a bad penny, he keeps turning up. 
He's not dead yet. The, the, no, no. the classical pointy-haired boss. <laughs> and one of the things that I've really enjoyed about writing this series is that it's a nice counterpoint for all the dystopian um, urban fantasy uh, dark stuff that's out there. This stuff is pretty irrepressibly upbeat and light because that's who I am as a person. And dystopian fiction is so is it's really easy to frame your story in that universe because everybody does it. And uh, that it doesn't take a lot of imagination. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to do that. And what you're doing, I think, requires a great deal more because it's uh you are you are tap dancing on the tops of the clouds as you Why, go along you, in your stories. And it is just it's marvelous. And you never get the sense that you're ever going to you're ever going to accidentally step through a cloud and end up in uh, in a pratfall. Uh, well, that's in, because in the there's a, a, a dirigible there that he can step on <laughs> effectively. Uh-huh. You'll but find you that know it'll be there. Yeah, but you, you have confidence that, that it's going to be there. And that that energy and that tone is going to be there page after page. And that is that is a big part of what keeps me turning pages in your books. Well, thank you. And I it, it's intentional. Uh, one of my influence, surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, is Gilbert and Sullivan. They have that same madcap interior topsy-turvy logic that uh, that I have liberally borrowed from and mm-hmm. used um, in my stories just because I think the social commentary that you can frame in it with a very light touch while also um, mostly poking holes in human egos mm-hmm. is is one of the masterpieces of, of uh, musical comedy. And uh, I think a lot of the comedy of Gilbert and Sullivan comes from the absurdity of the viewpoints of the characters in their stories. And, uh, and you carry that uh, as well. I mean, it's, it's, We've been discussing it for the last half hour, but uh, it's very easy to see, uh, you know, where where you're getting a lot of your inspiration for for this because we see this in our our own lives all the time. It's just that you seem to have a very good way of framing it and putting it on display so that we can all have a good belly laugh. Not everybody. I mean, well, not everybody has a pink pony princess. <laughs> I suppose he does. Well, well, I, as a matter of fact, the, the little Daoishan girl deciding to make her not just pink, but have pink polka dots had a lot to do with the um, typical thing reported that people see after they've been on a bender for a while. Oh, I uh, see. I thought so, it was just because you have got kids, you know. <laughs> well, no, I was thinking more along the lines of maybe drunks have seen Daoishans on occasion. Uh-oh. Huh. I'm explain a lot. Okay. And and I'm actually working on a short story that's going to be part of a, a collection that I will try to put together down the road that features a Daoishan explorer in the 4th century Terran uh, crash landing in South Asia and being mistaken for Ganesh. <laughs> nice. 
<laughs> or rather, not mistaken for, but inspiring. I think you just. I think you, you just, just broke, broke the host. You just broke the host. <laughs> um, if you if you have the chance, I would highly recommend going to xenotechsupport.com and signing up for my mailing list. Because if you do that, the system will automatically mail you a link to a short story about a guy running a pizza parlor catering for aliens in the Buckhead section of Atlanta. And let us just say that it it poses its own particular problems for a small businessman. Well, a small businessman isn't going to be able to accommodate a creature the size of an elephant. (laughs) Well, the, the big challenge there is that when the Daotians do order their pizzas, they have to do it 48 hours in advance. So, you know... Yeah, it takes that long for them to cook. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I suppose that would be the case, yeah. Because if you're going to feed an animal that big, it's going to be a damn big pizza. I mean, even it's the, the ones... toppings that get really challenging. <laughs> I bet. Well, I don't know. They, they, it seemed mostly edible from the ones. Yeah, the, I love the the food imagery in there. Of course, being of of the foodie myself, I'm I'm always interested in food descriptions in books, but uh, mostly mostly the, the Daotian stuff seemed edible except the stuff that uh, they warned you off of. Yeah, yeah, and and I've really enjoyed putting the food scenes in because they, you know, it's one of my loves as well, and it just struck me that one of the things that's been true of American culture over the centuries is that as we've encountered um, non-Western civilizations, we've incorporated their cuisines into ours. And, you know, you, you, there are Chinese restaurants on every corner, and now there are Thai and Indian. And, and um, you know, I could very easily see um, a pack carniceria kind of restaurant or um mm, yeah yeah rare. right and and i've got i've actually got two pack fusion restaurants in my uh in book four i just finished writing a chapter about indo pack cuisine oh. yeah exactly mm. i thought you would get that <laughs> and um so the the challenge is that um, the pack have required a change in the Scoville scale. It's now been recalibrated to be exponential to handle the pack peppers. Yikes. Oh my gosh! You know what? But Gulliver would eat them. <laughs> you know, I know a guy who would just say, "Oh, that's almost hot enough." <laughs> Everybody knows that guy. I, I has a guy. would think there would be a a, a chemical. Uh, r- limitation on exactly how hot that You'd, could get. You would think so, wouldn't you? But then you you thought so, and then you visited Hyderabad. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I went to Hyderabad on Hyderabad, India, on business, and they cook everything with so much pepper it makes your eyes water just walking into the restaurants. And uh, we were staying in a township, and uh, you know, there everything's townships. It's like. Uh, Clusters of apartment buildings all surrounding a, a little public area uh, that they all share, or a common area. And uh, at, at on the ground floor of this one was a restaurant, and we would try to go there for breakfast. Uh, we went there precisely twice. Uh, 
because we couldn't get them to make our food in an edible format. Um, uh, and finally, my uh, my boss, who was traveling with me, said, "I've I've had it with these guys. I'm going to order something they can't possibly screw up: scrambled eggs." So uh, he ordered his scrambled eggs, and he says, "Don't put any spice in it." He and they said. Oh no, don't worry, won't be spicy. And we got the scrambled eggs, and the scrambled eggs were red. Because they had put so much chili powder in it, that it had changed the color of the scrambled eggs. Oh no, and that's just the way eggs look here. Yeah. yeah and no. they were completely inedible. And just, it just made everything in Hydrate Bad just makes your eyes water. And it's like that. Well, part of this is what explains the stoicism of the pack. Mm -hmm. They they have to keep the pain internalized. I I guess so. If they're going to eat that stuff. We know guys like this, though. They would just sit there in front of a pack, you know, a pack and a a Ukrainian sitting across from each other, you know, eating chili peppers at each other. Yeah, eating ghost peppers at each other. Yeah. Totally. So... Where, at what point did you decide, I've got some great ideas, I'm going to write a book? Ah, wonderful question. Um, I am lucky enough to be retired from my executive jobs. And I am blessed that my wife told me that, you know, you don't have to go back to work, now you can write. And I said, cool, now what will I write? And the genesis of this particular story broke down that first scene, um, the prologue where the aliens teleport into the office of the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase. And I had one page. And I said, okay, this is funny, but I can't hang a whole series on that. What am I going to do? And then I had the sort of Archimedean inspiration in the shower, not the bath, mm-hmm. and shouted Eureka and said, what if I make my hero an entrepreneur doing tech support 15 years later? Because <laughs> you know that guy. The, the alien technology will be everywhere. And bizarre and, and the out of big control. companies might have a clue on how to use it and have sent some of their people off planet to get advanced mm-hmm. training and all that. But the small and mid-sized businesses are going to be absolutely lost when anything goes wrong, which it will fairly often. And the results I determined would be either funny or dangerous or most likely both simultaneously. So that's what did it. And I said, well, how do I kick off the story? And I thought about funny things that have happened to me. And then I realized that I had an even better example and thought about the Sorcerer's Apprentice scene from Fantasia with Mickey and the Brooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I said, what if a 3D printer were printing out brooms? Energizer but, bunnies. But little pink rabbit robot lawnmowers I thought were a little more funny. <laughs> I did. And I stole the pink theme uh, for both the Daushans and for the Rabbots 
from my musical, which was called Software.com. And huh. the software company was a fashion.com built by people who had no idea about fashion or dot coms. <laughs> and its theme color was hot pink and its motto was back to the future. Uh, so is that real? That's, that's what a my real company was for the pink part of the bunnies and the Dalutians. <laughs> and the rest was just trying to write a Jim Butcher, Harry Dresden story if Dresden were an optimist using tech instead of magic. <laughs> uh-huh. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and possibly the other way around. Well, as a matter of fact, I am using that reverse of um, um, I'm using that quote for the next series I'm planning to write, which is going to be a complimentary series to the Xenotech series, which is not over by any chance, by any stretch. I'm just going to try something different. It's a fantasy series mm-hmm. because I realized that the fundamental technology, the you know, the equivalent of warp drive in my world is something called a congruency, which is nothing but a wormhole that opens a connection between two points in space without crossing the intervening distance. Mm-hmm. And if you have that, you get unlimited energy from, um, you know, directly from the sun. You can get all the water you want from Europa to turn the Sahara green. You get teleportation. You get star drives. You get all kinds of things. And what made me think was, you know, you could use congruencies to make pretty darn cool magic. Yes, you And my first story in the the next set features a young man of 16 who has, in his pseudo-medieval culture, kind of like the Amish, to avoid inbreeding. At 16, every young man and young woman has to go walking around for a year and a day and just travel to other places, hopefully to meet somebody else and um, form an attachment so the gene pool doesn't get too narrow, but also to broaden them out a little bit so they don't get too frustrated living alone, living by, by themselves in these small towns. So on the first day out, my young man comes to a crossroads and finds an amulet resembling Dr. Strange's Eye of Agamotto sitting in the middle of the crossroads. He picks it up, looks at it, turns it away from him, and by mistake he happens to squeeze something on the edge. And a fireball comes out and destroys a couple of trees across um, a field. And he does one of those holy crap. Uh-huh. Holy bleep yeah. moments. And, and says... I don't, I think I'm going to need a mentor. So the first book in the series is called The Congruent Apprentice. And it's about this young man's attempt to find somebody who's going to teach him how to master this artifact he's found. And one of the maxims he learns from his mentor is the wizard makes the artifact, the artifact does not make the wizard. So he has to learn how to make one of his own, and that's going to be part of that first adventure. The second book is tentatively titled The Congruent Wizard, and then the third one may be something along the lines of The Congruent Dragon. But I've, I've got 
homage there to um, L. Sprague de Camp's The Complete Enchanter. So mm-hmm. it it should be a fun series, and perhaps in book four, a gate will open between Jack's world and my um, medieval hero's world, and we will see what happens when the two collide. That sounds like so much fun. I, that just sounds that sounds like a great romp. How fast can you write? <laughs> That's a very kind thing to say, especially since I get your intention. Um, so far, I've been able to turn out two books and some miscellaneous short stories and and such. A year. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a that's pretty actually pretty, pretty good, good clip. That's a pretty fast clip. Yeah, and the books tend to be between a hundred and a hundred and twenty thousand words. Queen's Gambit is a, on the order of a hundred and twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Xenotech, what happens is more like a hundred and five. But I am able to write them reasonably quickly. Uh, I, I, it helps during tax season when my wife's out of the house and I can just sit and not be distracted by anything. But one of the joys of retirement is being able to focus on the writing and not be um, pulled away to earn a living. So it's been great fun. Well, and uh, the the potential is there for this to be uh, a wonderful um new thing to do for money. I mean, yeah, yeah and, and I'm hoping that that will be the case. I think I've only been doing this for about 16 months and I've sold over 1,100 books just with my own promotion and my own um, going around to cons and such, which I, I, which is not great by the standards of some of the folks that already have five or 6,000 person blogs that they just now have written books and people are picking it up or that are writing military science fiction with a built-in huge market. But I do believe that as more people find out about this, word of mouth will be quite good. I've been very pleased that whenever I see a sale of Xenotech Rising, I can usually see sales of the next two or three books in the series mm-hmm. in short order because – um, you know, well, it's, there it's, is a pretty good pull through, and I'm, it's, I'm it's happy addictive that that stuff. It's addictive stuff. You know, and and you uh, want to know what happens next? Yeah, the, I think the biggest problem that uh, uh, that fans of your books are going to have is they go through them so they go through them faster than you can write them, and uh, they're going to hit the wall. <laughs> Write faster. <laughs> well, no, then then we start getting the fanfic, and then we start uh-huh. getting the slash fanfic, and you know, <laughs> George R. You, George, you know, have you have you heard that George R. R. Martin has come out against fanfic? He doesn't oh, yeah. doesn't want any Game of Thrones fanfic. Well, he's not the first uh, major fantasy writer to make a rule like that, honey. <laughs> well, Wasn't that's that Anne McCaffrey. Anne McCaffrey was also very much against it. She, oh, she was just vehemently. Well, there was there was a, a, a an ugly case in uh, Marion Zimmer and Bradley's uh, world, and that after that, it was kind of a no fanfic thing for a lot of the big uh, fantasy writers. I didn't know that. Well, we'll, we'll talk later pleased, about that. I was pleased that an artist, a friend of mine, was talking about. Um, <sighs> Mystery Science, um, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Theater 3000, uh, you know, doing this and he, 
made a silhouette of the reviewers, but the reviewer, the reviewers included a peer and a Tigramath and a few <laughs> others sitting in there. Um, it's easier than cosplay, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I, I was impressed by your thoughts of cosplaying as a peer. I think I would love to see that someday. <laughs> that would make my day. What do you mean take a long walk after off a short pier? Uh-huh. No, I am the short pier. <laughs> Yeah, you know we had Mary Jo Peel on uh, on the Event Horizon about uh, mom two, mom forester. Yeah, <laughs> about two, two months back. Yeah, she was she was so much fun. Very cool. Yeah, John and B. Joe Trimble were out at a Star Trek convention in Atlanta a few months ago, and I got to see them after many years, which was a real pleasure. They are delightful people, and we've had them on the air as well. And uh, I, it's I'm struck by how connected. All of this stuff is, and I think, I think that uh, uh, that connectivity is is going to be what makes your books uh, um, classics in fandom. I really feel that. I think- well, it's not quite as true as it used to be, but there in the seventies certainly it was said that you had to be a member of the SCA to sell a fantasy trilogy, and it sure felt like it. That's true. <laughs> That's that's that was that was a very definite phenomenon, you know, back in the 1970s. Well, and having been a national officer in the SCA back in the day, I got to know people all across the known world, mm-hmm. which was great, including Susan as one of them. And you know, being able to travel when I traveled, I automatically knew people. Uh, when I went to that event in Kaid, I was staying. At John and uh, Bejo's. Well, if you, yeah, you know, it's it's better than a fraternity, isn't it? You know, any he can just drop you in any major city in the world, and you've got and you've got, uh, a, place you've got a place to stay, and people and will be insulted yeah. if you don't if you stayed in a hotel. <laughs> uh, you do you realize that you can blame one of the worst puns in the SCA on me? Really? I'm sure I can blame several of them on you, but which one in particular? The chronicler's device. Oh, you're the one. Yes, uh, if okay, you have a call, uh, it is a red chief over per pale black and white with quills counterchanged in a V. It's and black and white the, and red all over. Yes, and Hillary of Serendip um, had said, opened it up to try and get submissions, and she took that one, and I have been thrilled that it has been widely adopted. The funny thing for me is explaining it to folks on occasion when they go, huh? And then they go, oh. oh. <laughs> to see the look on their face when they get the joke is really entertaining. Herald, heraldry puns. This is what makes – this is what amuses geeks, okay? <laughs> uh, have you met Shuvath, the, the uh, uh, Orishan nymph who is looks like a – Praying Mantis from Hell. Not yet. I have not. Ah, well, Susan probably has, but I haven't. Yes, I've I, I read all of them home. Well, the intriguing thing is that Mike drags him along to an SCA event, um, painted up as a samurai. You know, you come as you are, you come as you aren't. We can't, we can't, you know, tell you you can't. That's well, Title funny. Nine, you know. <laughs> title Nine. It's that's that. that 
federal law that, that says you can't discriminate. If you know, Oh, <laughs> yeah. You thought a redheaded samurai was strange. How about a green-headed one? <laughs> yeah. Well, and par- part of the fun for this whole thing was to just take social conventions and say, what will change in the context of having a much larger canvas to paint on where it's not just insular little earth, it's earth as one among many um, civilizations, tens of thousands of civilizations across the Galactic Free Trade Association. And that was fun. And it was also a little less fun thinking about the number of um, individuals on earth that would probably fight that change in thought tooth and nail and would remain convinced that earth was flat and no turtles, but just flat and so on. Um, <laughs> Three different kinds of earth isolationists. Yes. You I know, hope you, you enjoyed know that, that would happen. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and and each one of them with their own motivations and and daft reason, equally daft reasoning. And some of them just pretty innocuous, and some of them not. <laughs> uh huh. I even got to bring my love of printing into into one of the books where um, <laughs> Jack visits someone who is supposedly the head of one of the groups, and he is actually printing up his own protest signs in a Gutenberg-style press in his basement. <laughs> that's great. And he can, tell, he can tell that the cards that are being uh, passed around purportedly from him are not him because if you hold them under a magnifying glass, you can see the dots and his are all – the ink is continuous because of the process he uses. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah. So, let's see. The the books in the Xenotech series are... The titles, please. Yes. Um, let me give them to you in the order in which I wrote them. The first one is Xenotech Rising, mm-hmm. which tells the story of Jack Buxton's initial adventures and how he meets his partner. The book I wrote next is book zero, not to be consistent, but it is the prequel that tells what happened on First Contact Day. And um, again, that's called Xenotech First Contact Day. Then we have Xenotech Queen's Gambit, where the queen of the Daotians is coming to Atlanta to speak at an Emory graduation and also do a little consulting with the CDC about this plague. And the third book, Jack and Polly, his partner, have become romantically attached and are trying to figure out a place to go to have a romantic holiday. And, you know, Jack is suggesting places like Tahiti or Maui. And the two of them agree that they will each write down lists and then share their lists. And the first one they agree on, that's where they'll go. And because they are both such geeks both had written down the Galactic Technology Expo, which is loosely modeled on Comdex in Las Vegas. So <laughs> uh-huh. book three is Xenotech What Happens, because, of course, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> book four deals with the search for the head of the... Um, 
bad guy organization, which I will not tell you about so that you can enjoy it, Gene. Okay. Um, and, um, it is, his name is, he is referred to as the general. And I think he's actually mentioned in the very he is, beginning. Yeah, he's of the mentioned series. actually in, in the very beginning of the series in first contact day. Exactly. But, um, he's, he's actually, he's, isn't he the head of, of one of the, uh, the earth, uh, protectionist societies? Yes, yes, that is. Um, but the the fourth book is called Xenotech General Mayhem. Ah. And, and one of the hallmarks of my books is that I like to have a major chaotic pull all the threads together, have everything go nuts chapter about two or three from the end where uh, the reader can – Go and now what's going to happen? <laughs> uh-huh. And then um, the pie fight. So, Everybody needs a pie fight. <laughs> exactly. So, so general mayhem um, is going to be definitely what takes place at Centennial Olympic Park in downtown Atlanta at the end of the fourth novel. Yeah, he must have been promoted from commander mayhem when no one was looking. <laughs> Stop. Dave Schrader, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Absolutely. We've really enjoyed the experience. Uh, We're talking to Dave Schrader, author of the Xenotech series. It has been, it's just been a delight. And and you're welcome back on the show anytime. That would be wonderful. Just let me know. You have been listening to episode 152 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for October 22nd, 2016. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow, and our guest this evening has been Dave Schrader, the author of the Xenotech Support series of comedic science fiction novels. This episode will air again on Sunday, October 23rd, 2016 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Tuesday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is substantially listener-supported, and if you enjoyed hearing The Event Horizon this week, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash kryptonradio. Just five green pieces of paper a month. That's all we ask. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator, and you would like to appear as a guest on The Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This episode was copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.